0: Good evening. Good evening. Well, this morning we looked at a portion of scripture out of Romans on the issue of the flesh carnality and the remedy for carnality on an individual basis, but this evening I'd like for us to take a look in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 where Paul addresses the issue of Carnality in the assembly, carnality in the assembly. So if you would please uh, turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Now, again, to kind of reiterate what carnality is, we recognize that there are just two kinds of people in the world, those that are saved, and those that are not. Those that uh, have the prospect of being in the eternal presence of God and those that don't have that prospect. and We would call one, of course, the natural man, that's the man that is outside of Christ. And then as far as the saved man is, I think that there are really in Scripture, two identifications of a man that belongs to the Lord and one is a spiritual man and the other is a carnal man. The spiritual man is utterly and absolutely dependent on the Spirit of God to move in his life for the glory of God. But the carnal man lives in the flesh. In other words, he's a man that is saved But is attempting even to live for Christ in the power of the flesh as a natural, as if it were a natural man. And it, of course, can't be done. And so a carnal man is a fleshly man, a man that lives in the power of the flesh. Now, when we speak (coughs) doctrinally of the flesh, uh, the flesh of a believer, it isn't uh, the that which hangs on our bones, it's what we are by nature, what we are as the offspring of Adam. And so <coughs> Paul now addresses this issue of believers in the assembly of God living as men that are carnal, as having, living in an <coughs> as a natural man would live. Let's take a look at just a little portion here, of well, a good portion of chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you are not able to receive it, and even now you're still not able, for you are still carnal. For where there are envy and strife and division among you, are you not carnal? And behaving like mere men, or like mere natural men? For when, you say, uh, for when one says, I am of Paul, and another I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? And one uh, who is who then is Paul, and who is Apollo's, but ministers through whom you believed, as the Lord gave to each one? I planted, Apollo's watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For you are God's fellow workers, and you are God's field, you are God's building. According to the grace of God which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is if anyone's work which he had built on, uh, on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Do you not know that you are the temple of a God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of a God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy which temple you are. The issue of carnality, the evidence of carnality, as Paul presents it, is unfolded in, in three words, I think. Envy, strife, and division. Envy, strife, and division. <clears throat> the behavior of those in the in the assembly is that they were jealous one of another the word here that's used is envy but in uh, in fact i think it is more jealousy envy has the suggestion of you have something and I want what you have but since I can't have it I don't want you to have it that's envy jealousy is i you have something and I want what you have but not at the cost of you losing it jealousy I want what you have and so that's the issue I think that is presented for us here. There was in the assembly jealousy, not jealousy in the sense of wanting material things, but I think this was in, in spiritual matters. How many times have you heard a young man or a woman that says, oh, I wish I had that? And as far as a gift goes, as far as a work within the body of Christ, the want of something other than what God has already given you. Remember that gifts are nothing more than uh, a second portion, isn't it? An added portion of blessing. We're to live lives that, uh, that exercise the graces that God gives. Each believer is to exercise the graces one towards another in ministering one to another. And God says out of those, that's really what gifts are, graces. And God says, look, I'm going to give you a little addition. That's a gift. I'm going to give you a little added portion. I want you now to work within that realm. Not at the cost of you not using the other graces or exercising the other graces, but you have an added portion and that's a realm of ministry that is primary for you. And sometimes we tend to feel, particularly uh, when it comes to public kind of ministry, that there's a desire, a far greater desire for, for that public kind of ministry among young men than it is to, be, to exercise the gift of helps, for instance. And so here is the, uh, the issue of jealousy as far as spiritual matters go, spiritual issues. Go. And that's what was happening in Corinthians, and we have to be careful that it doesn't happen in our midst. Then there was strife, contention. If we drop back to, to chapter one, for instance, verse 11, it says, for uh, it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, um, by those of Chloe's household that you are contentious, that there are contentions among you, Um, bickering, quarrels among you, sometimes immaterial issues within the family of God, the the body of Christ, the local assembly, and there are little quarrels, quibbling that's going on. Obviously, that's not spiritual. That is a sign, of course, of carnality. And then there are divisions, factions. I am of Cephas, and I am of Paul, and I am of Apollos. In fact, again, if we were to go back to uh, chapter one, um, Paul states um, in verse 12, now I say that, that each of you says I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or even I am of Christ. We're far more spiritual, you see. We're not after Cephas, we're not after uh, that's, uh, Peter, we're not after Paul. Peter, look, but I'm of Christ, well, every believer is. And so we have to be very, very careful. Uh, you know, I like uh, Peter, you know, he's a go-getter. He's out there and he, he doesn't wait around, he's off an at I like Apollos, he's a, he has a quiet spirit about him. And I like his approach to presenting the word of God or the gospel. I like Paul as a man of intellect, and he can convey the spiritual truths in such a wonderfully intellectual way. You see, that? And so we have to be careful about this issue of Uh, divisions, factions within the assembly. May I suggest that those factions can also um, show themselves in the issue of not just following somebody but not letting, not permitting someone to step in to be followed. Just very recently in an assembly, um, that I won't mention, there was an issue of uh, recognition of an elder. A young man, relatively young man, that was doing the work within the assembly that met all of the criteria within the body of Christ, and yet some within the assembly were offended that he would take the place of an elder. There's no way of withholding him if, he, if the Spirit of God has placed that want of service into his heart and he's doing the work and he meets the criteria and the qualifications the only responsibility that we have is to point him out it's the work of the spirit of god the spirit of god makes the move the spirit of god brings the man into the place all we're doing is recognizing that in fact the Spirit of God does it. And so we may have factions even uh, that are expressed in that kind of a way. So we need to be very, very careful about these sort of things. There's a threefold effect, the effect of carnality. Carnality, first of all, dwarfs. Look at verse one and two again. And I, brethren, would not speak to you as to spiritual people, but to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you have not been able to receive it, and even now you're still not able. Carnality dwarfs. These are men and women that should have been going on. They should have already been on the meat of the word, but they're still babes drinking of the the milk. They weren't anti-spiritual, they were just babes fed with the milk, not able to receive the deeper things of of God, um, the meat. And we need to be careful in that realm. Remember the Lord Jesus, for instance, in, uh, what is it, chapter 16, where he dealt with his, or he spoke to his uh, disciples at that time. Uh, He says, I have uh, yet many things to tell you, but you are not able to receive them. He was speaking in, that, in the context there of blessing. There are many blessings that I have yet to present to you, but you're not able to receive them. You see, a blessing that is given to someone that doesn't have the capacity to receive it becomes a burden. The Spirit of God works on each one of us as if it were to make us a broader, a greater vessel to receive the blessing. Each one of us, as I've said uh, many times, I think, from this pulpit, each one of us is going to be filled to 100% in Christ, of Christ. But not everyone is of the same size. Some are going to be larger than others. As we permit the Spirit of God to work in our lives, to make us a greater vessel to receive the greater blessings. And so that's the problem here, babes still in, in Christ. Uh, carnality also divides, as we've said before, as division, verse 3 th- through 15. We won't read through that again, but I think you understand that just a bit There is division in the assembly, sometimes subtle, other times not so subtle. I know of an incident, for instance, from years, years back, but I've used it as an illustration before, so forgive me if you've heard it. It's a fact, though. Two sisters, two dear sisters in the assembly, one would sit on the one side, in the pews on the one side, and the other would sit in the pews on the other for the Lord's Supper. Terrible thing, divisions within an assembly. How is the Lord glorified in that? How is the assembly able to progress spiritually with that type of thing going on when it's not dealt with? And so we have to recognize these problems. Some may not be as open as that, but still carry resentment and anger and and uh, those sort of things, one towards another. We have to be very careful that, the th- that we permit that in the <coughs> assembly or that as individuals, we're to guard against that. We're to judge ourselves first before we come to the Lord's Supper in particular. Make sure that the issues are settled each night before our uh, head hits the pillow. We're to Be sure that the day is clear. The issues of the day are clear. But at least before the Lord's Supper, we're to make sure that things are clear. And So so the issue of division. And then in verse 16 and 17 also, we find that there's defilement in the assembly because of carnality. Pretty soon we become a little lax to issues that should be dealt with and sin enters as defilement in the assembly. If we permit divisions, and uh, if we permit uh, the um, bickering in the in the assembly, we'll also look the other way on the smaller, what we consider smaller matters, and not small matters before the Lord, but smaller matters of defilement, and so we need to be, uh, awfully careful regarding those things, what is the remedy for carnality? If these are the effects of carnality, the fruit of carnality, what, are the, what is the remedy? Well, I think in this section the remedy is, of course, the spiritual apprehension and appreciation for the house of God, for the assembly. This is not just merely a meeting hall where a bunch of individual people come together on a Sunday morning and a Sunday evening, on a Wednesday night, or for Awanas or whatever else. This is not simply four walls where individuals come in. You're part of an assembly, and God has placed you here, and you're here until the Lord removes you from here and you're here as a local body, not just individual people. You know, we we don't have the liberty as so many take of just going around canvassing for a church that appeals to us. We have a responsibility when Lord, places you here, you're here for a very purpose, and that is to minister to me, to minister to others, to minister one to another. You're important to me, and I ought to be important to you. The assembly is more than the sum of its individuals. It is a living entity and so, it is the issue of, of looking at the assembly uh, uh, as a divinely constituted entity. And so, Paul, as Ezekiel of old, is now drawing that. He, uh, he's showing us the house, basically, and he's looking that to the saints at Corinth for that they be convicted and of course, that they be brought around, that they uh, make confession and, and that they're restored and in fact, more than restored, but brought to full recovery. Divisions among, assemb- uh, among the saints, is a practical denial of God's supreme claim on his own. The assembly is not of Paul, it's not of Cephas, it's not of Apollos. The assembly is of God. Ye are God's husbandry. You are God's building. Ye are God's temple. That's what Paul presents in this particular section. And our understanding of the assembly in these three facets, in these three pictures, I think will give us an appreciation of really our place in the body of Christ locally and God's view of our place in the assembly. Let's take a look at them. These three distinctions, the God's husbandry speaks of the fruitfulness of that which is his husbandry. And we have presented for us the unity of that which is God's building. And finally, we have the sanctity of that which is God's temple. God's husbandry, he's in verse nine, for we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field. Really, the issue there can be presented as husbandry, a garden, you are God's building. And then in verse uh, uh, 16, do you not know that you are the temple of God? Three views, three pictures of the assembly of God's people. The fruitfulness of that which is God's husbandry. The assembly is, compared to cultivated, cultivated soil, a garden. I think it draws my mind to Song of Solomon, Chapter 4. I don't know if you're familiar. You probably are familiar with that lovely portion, where it is that, uh, that the shepherd prince speaks of his love as a garden, as a garden. And there is the fruitfulness within that garden. And then there's the sweet aroma within, the, within that particular garden as well. And then there is beauty, beauty, fragrance, and fruit. And it's for him. It's for him. The garden is enclosed, walled in So that it is, so nothing from the outside interferes with it. Now, some of the fruit may overhang the walls, and certainly the fragrance of that assembly may go forth, may waft into the world. And there may be a peak of some of the beauty, but principally the assembly of God's people, this assembly is for the Lord Jesus Christ himself. We speak of bringing people in to present the gospel to them, but that's not the true element of the church that we are told to go out to preach the gospel. This is an entity that belongs to the Lord, a garden just for him. The walls, but there is also the wells, the spirit of God, giving fruit and fragrance and beauty. The wells, we won't go and look at the the fourth chapter, I'll leave that to you, of uh, Songs of Solomon, I'll leave that to to your own time, but... So, here's this lovely picture of a garden, living waters, giving life within the garden, the secret of fruitfulness, the spirit of God moving within the assembly, and the walls that confine this to the Lord. The walls have been broken down, in many a, a church, so to speak, And the world has entered in, the standards of the world. Today we accommodate the things that are politically considered to be correct that were just a few years ago considered to be sin, even by the world. And the church permits those walls to be broken down and the world to come in to the assembly into the church. We need to be careful about that. The walls that separate us from the world, not from the sinners, but from the world, from the effects, the standard of the world. We're to go out to the sinner and to proclaim the good news and to bring them in, to bring them to the Lord and then into the local body, into the assembly a garden, a garden for himself. Then we have the unity, <clears throat> which is God's building. Again, we, for those of you that are taking note, verse 9 through 15, I think, covers that particular uh, section. We won't read it again. God is the great architect of this, of this assembly. Paul is the master builders, if it were the foundation that he sets is the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the only foundation that can be set, and we are to build on that. And, of course, we're given the, some of the materials that we build with, gold, silver, precious stones, and so on, and wood, hay, and stubble. What materials are we using to build this, uh, this building? In um, First Peter chapter two, remember that, the, that we're told that we are living stones being builded together for a habitation of a God. In fact, it's, the idea there is that it is the center in which we're able to give worship. Individual living stones, not bricks, but stones, When we speak of a building, the unity of a building, we generally think of beams and and bricks that are of even dimensions, but that's not true for a spiritual building. Individual stones, not formed bricks made by the hands of men, but individual stone, each one different than the other, because we're all different than the other, placed into the building by the Spirit of God, then then fitted into that building and cemented into that building by the Spirit of God. It is the Spirit of God that unifies, that brings unity to the building. Not false man-made cement, And so he takes these living stones, each one different, and he places it into the building, and then he unites those stones into a building for his own habitation. What a lovely picture. Unity. Unity is not uniformity. It isn't the bricks that man makes. It's the living stones that are in view here. And that unity is maintained by the Holy Spirit. Where there is unity, as I said, there is variety. Living stones, each one is different. But the variety that is maintained in harmony. We're all different. We're to complement each other, not have conflicts with each other. Harmony, to use a, perhaps a little different metaphor than a building, um, <clears throat> some of you here are musicians, some of you are very good musicians. You can go into a, uh, a concert hall where there are a hundred and some odd pieces, a so hundred and some odd different instruments, and you walk in there, perhaps initially, perhaps you're a little early for the, uh, for the uh, concert, uh, you know, there's a whole symphony there. Uh, symphony orchestra and you're a little early and the, the folks are, are kind of tuning their, their instruments and it's just a cacophony of noise, but then when the conductor comes up to, the po- to his podium, taps on it and begins, what do you have? You have all of these different instruments all of the variety, the strings and, uh, um, well, all of them, you know what I'm talking about, right? And the brass and the percussion and the, all of them coming together. And what do you have? Harmony. Variety, but harmony. And you have this beautiful, beautiful music presented by that. Harmony and so it's uh, the harmony is the effect of a blending together dif- of different sounds in concord harmony that's what the assembly ought to be there ought to be unity we ought to realize that we're all different but there ought to be a harmony here in the variety you know heaven's going to be full of variety you know if the god that that is able to take flowers, that why not just make a yellow flower or a white and with uh, petals not uh, the kind that the rose had, why not just make that? This sin-stained earth is still sees some of the glorious beauty of God's hand, variety. He's going to bring a people together out of Every nation, every people, every subtribe, every family, there'll be black and there'll be browns and there'll be whites and, and then there'll be the, even the Scots there. you know they're a little whiter than white. Right? <laughs> right, see, what a wonderful God. There will be that variety, and and I believe that all of that variety coming together, not just in appearance, but in all of our experiences of life coming together, we'll be able to, to say, oh, that God of ours, what a God. Look what he did for me here in the experience that this person had that we had not. And here's another that had it. An utterly different experience. It will never run out of all of the variety of God's work in the body of His people. Wonderful truth. And so unity, we have to be careful that unity as it's, uh, is, <clears throat> is not simply set as a goal, in de- a goal independent of, of the moving of the Spirit of God. If we are seeking unity as its objective in itself, we're attempting to bring about unity. On the one extreme, we'll have exclusivism. Close the doors. We're it. On the other hand, we'll have compromise. Or, well, for the sake of unity, let's not worry about that particular issue. Not let's not deal with that sin, and we begin compromising. We don't bring about unity in the assembly. The Spirit of God brings the unity. But we're to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bonds of peace in the the local assembly. And so we have to be careful. No exclusivism and no compromise. And then finally there is the sanctity of that which is the temple of God, in verse 16. The temple of God. There are two words in the New Testament that are used for the temple of God. Uh, one is herion in the Greek, herion, which refers to the whole temple, the whole structure, just as it stood. And then the other is nahos, which refers only to the inner sanctuary, the Holy of Holies. Perhaps a better, uh, a more understandable illustration would be to to look at the tabernacle. You remember the tabernacle, I think? In the tabernacle, the tabernacle itself, the structure was broken into two parts, the holy place and the holy of holies. As the priest entered in on the left hand side would be, the candlesticks. On the right-hand side, there would be the table of showbren. And in front, before the curtain that gives entrance into the Holy of Holies, you had the uh, altar of incense. And then as you entered in through that, as the priest, the high priest, uh, who's the only one that could enter into the Holy of Holies, as he would enter into the very Holy of Holies, One time a year, on the Day of Atonement, there's the Ark, the Ark of the Covenant. On it is the mercy seat with two cherubim facing each other and it was the place or the residence for the Shekinah glory. It is where God abode in the midst of his people Israel. He says, This church, this assembly, this body of believers is just that the very holy of holies where God resides and where he's to be expressed in us, manifested in the assembly. Chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, we see again the temple there, and this time it's not the assembly, it's the individual. Again the same word, neos, that we are the temple, our body is the temple of a holy God, the inner sanctuary through which God is to be manifested. Do we see these pictures of the assembly? Do we have a different view? of what the assembly truly is, a garden just for him, that ought to give expression in beauty and in fragrance and in fruit for his delight, a building of varying saints' stones, building on Christ, in unity, one with the other. Harmony. So instead of a noisy cacophony, it will be a delightful song in his ears. And then finally, of course, the temple where he is manifested in the midst of the assembly. What a great privilege we have as believers, not just individually, but corporately. And we're here for these very purposes. Carnality, it disappears in a a, uh, corporate sense. It disappears when we have a full understanding of what the assembly is to the Lord and what, we pla- what place we have in the assembly, either to have a, a ministry that glorifies him or one that, of course, is worked out and lived out in carnality to his sorrow. May we just recognize these things and live in an understanding of our great privilege and responsibility, corporately. Let's look to the Lord. Our beloved Father, we come before Thee again, giving Thee praise and thanks, Father, for Thy love to us, for the expression of Thy love in the person of Thy Son. How we thank Thee, O blessed Father, though we are saved individually, Thou hast placed us into a body, the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, the church, and universally, we realize, Father, that it is composed of every believer throughout all of the centuries. and at this present time, but also, O blessed Father, that has established that very kind of a portrait of the church in the local body, in the local assembly. and may we realize, O oh, Father, our place, our responsibility and, above all, our privilege to exercise, Father, the aspects of beauty and fragrance and fruit, to do so in unity one with the other, Father, so that thou art pleased by the living of harmony within the assembly, and that, O blessed Father, that thou might be manifested in our midst, And now, Father, might receive all glory in thy people. In the blessed name of the Lord Jesus, we ask these things. Amen.